And welcome to the Life Support Live podcast, the weekly podcast that explores how Star Trek can help us to boldly go in our own lives to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. As a famous starship captain once said, and as another famous starship captain also once said, the one with the new series on the way, wherever our mission takes us, We'll try to have a little fun along the way. Always, always. That's the goal. Hi, everyone. I'm psychologist Dr. Ali Matu. And I'm Dr. Trek, Larry Nimacek. One of us is a real doctor. And we'll leave it to you to decide who that is. <laughs> hey, every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, we record this show live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook with our audience joining in and rebroadcast here as a podcast. If you'd like to join us live, check out the links in the show notes. And now, let's engage with our regularly scheduled program, Already in Progress. I am excited for today's topic. Today we are talking about, uh, there it is, uh, misjudging motivations, um, getting uh, getting the wrong impression. Uh, we're talking about all of this sort of stuff, and we want to start things out by asking you, what is your favorite Star Trek episode about misjudging others, about getting your impressions completely wrong? And we should say the reason why we are picking this topic, as we have been since uh, the start of Star Trek Lower Decks, we take our weekly inspiration from the new episode of Lower Decks. We don't go into spoilers, um, and this week especially we're not going to do that because there's just a, a lovely little reveal in this episode. The, uh, right. The point I started to go for, and I thought, well, that'll be a spoiler. Oh, who cares anymore? <laughs> who cares? It's 2020. That's a spoiler. Uh, kind of had stick to with our reel deck. my co-host back in. But this was um, this was a fun little episode, and it, it kind of begins with this um, it begins with this moment where our lower deckers. Just really, um, they're not really sure what's happening. They find themselves in the situation with aliens and they're, they're drawing from all the examples that they're familiar with to try to figure out what's happening. And they kind of keep messing up and they keep missing it. And so we thought that this would be a beautiful theme to go off of because for many reasons, it's, it's hard to really understand the motivations of others right now. Larry, one of the things I found is, um, what did you found? Hard. I, I found a lot. Um, and, and I've also still am looking for a lot of things because I have no idea what's going on, but it's, it's quite hard to just, um, really read another person's emotions, especially when they're wearing a face mask. Um, that's one thing. And, uh, like yesterday I ran in, I was, um, getting some takeout and ran into apparently an old friend from high school, but, uh, we didn't really recognize each other because we both had these face masks on and afterwards we texted each other. Hey, was that you? Yeah. Was that you? Oh, who was that masked man? Yeah. Yeah. Who was it? Yeah. It was actually me. Uh, and it's also, so it's, you don't have a full read of everyone. It's hard behind a screen. There's lags. Lighting isn't great. Audio isn't great. We're, when we see each other over screens, we're not really getting the whole picture. I was gonna say, you're talking about our show. That's what you're talking about. I'm talking about. basically about, <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> yeah, basically. And, uh, also, you know, some of us aren't doing too well. Our mood is low. We're not, we don't feel like ourselves. It's, there's so many reasons why it's hard to misjudge others, but I want to let's talk about judging for a moment. Larry, what'd you think of this episode? 
without oh i, I loved it actually i i was engrossed i laughed out loud three or four times it continues the uh the in joke reference or the easter egg reference parade as we insist on calling it now but no i but uh, after it was done i went back to think about the plot and realized it was actually pretty it was a pretty complex show because they kept using yeah. flash but you know you basically had to get through four flashbacks within the arc of the show, the different point of view, you know, it's like a Rashomon type, no, not totally Rashomon, but uh, you had mm. all four of the Lower Deckers points of right. view to get through within right. a courtroom setting, which wasn't a, which might not actually be a courtroom, but you had to get through testimony from four people. So you had four different sub stories that all linked together, despite being told by four different people that only were quasi related to the ongoing plot and i was like right. well, that was actually right. kind of a complex structure for not to get too deep on it but yeah you know yeah but still it, it really laughable. was yeah um i i really enjoyed that episode so there's two things one i really enjoyed that episode i completely agree with you is probably structurally one of the most complex ones and it also allowed all of our lower deckers to shine in their different ways with their different personality quirks uh, so I really no, we enjoyed didn't have that. A, we didn't have the A plot, the A plot, B plot mm -mm. separation this week. They were all, mm -mm. all in this together. Yeah. Yeah, it felt, and in, in, in that way, it kind of felt very, very modern, um, and less, less of an homage to TNG, the A plot, B plot, and more of its kind of own thing. Uh, one thing though, Larry, um, they keep mentioning the Enterprise D a lot, like a lot. I want the, I love the references and can like the parade of, of, of uh, references that you mentioned. However, Larry, it's a big universe out there. Can we get some references to Voyager? Can we get some references? I mean, we saw Deep Space Nine in a previous episode, but we haven't really had many references to Deep Space Nine. I'd like to get them a little bit less focused on the Enterprise D and um, and that crew. Well, Dr. Matu, uh, I've heard this from other people too. And what I, I, there's times when I kind of go, eh, as I'm watching a show go by, but the truth is the show's out, the episodes are out there now. So they're done. Yeah. The ship has sailed. Yeah. You know, so what the, what we have to be, what we're left with to conclude is that, we may think of it as like, well, that's the, that's the Star Trek show that was on for seven years. And it, it was the sequel show that then begat the modern wave and set up the whole paradigm of a universe, not just these three guys on a ship in the 2260s. So by that, we have to look at it through their eyes, which means that it wasn't just a show we know. Picard and Data and Riker and Troy mm. and all of that is like the the Washington and Lincoln of their time, even though this is contemporary to Picard. And the events of Picard mm. series haven't happened yet. So every Larry, time that happens, I kind of go, eh. What you're left with as a viewer, as a fan, is to go, wow. And and for a while, I was just chalking it up to um, to Mariner. Like, she was the one yeah. that would get, go into the references. But this week, no, Boimler is bouncing off yeah. The walls with all the Trek references. That kind you of, know, Larry, that kind that's... of blew it as a thing, but but now, so now, you know, it's like it's the Tom Paris thing. Tom Paris is the big 20th century expert. You know, he keeps pulling. It's like, oh, how does this guy from the 23 whatevers know about Model T Fords and yada 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 yada? You know, Christine, <laughs> uh, 
It's a, that's just his thing, just like some people are yeah. Shakespeare heads now. You know, but, um, Ed, there's a lot of Shakespeare heads in Star Trek. But at least um, in this in this case, it's like they are all they're all contemporaries. And what it does to me then is it throws yeah. that much more weight on the Picard series. If this is yeah, what yeah. young officers are thinking about Picard, then he really blows it with the you know the Mars blow up is is what seven years away or whatever, and then. Yeah. The events of Picard are 12 years on that. So it's kind of like, here's the pinnacle of where he was and his crew was. And then now you see what's, what, what happens almost 20 years later. So folks, our, our episodes about misjudging motivations, maybe I have misjudged. We wondered. I think, I think this is, this is, um, this is a good take, Larry. Um, every now and then you've got, you've got good takes on this, this, uh, little show called Star Trek, I must say. Uh, oh. I really like, <laughs> I like this. I like this perspective that uh, what they're showing us is how important the Enterprise as the flagship of the Federation is to the Federation. And especially those years on the Enterprise D that they they kind of do live on in these stories that we have about George Washington in the United States or about um Gosh, I'm really showing my American is showing. I'm trying to think of examples that are more global. Um, but these these notable historical figures uh, and and Picard has become one of those notable. Uh, Mark Luther, figures. I don't know. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, Was there anything good out of medieval European history? I don't know. Or Asian uh, history? I'm trying. To, uh, yeah. Okay. Right. We got. We got. Uh, yeah. Maybe best to avoid those other examples. But I, I, I like that take, and, and I enjoyed that episode. And, and maybe this is a great way. I think I might have misjudged some of the motivations there too. Um, but let's let's jump into the briefing room. The, we've got so many great examples coming in from the chat about uh, where um, people have kind of misjudged motivations. There's one episode I really want to start with, Larry, and it's it's one that um, I'm a huge fan of and has come up many times here in our chat. Tapestry? No. No. Okay, no. I'm going to save in that one. Oh. Uh, I want to talk about Darmok. Um, because when it, comes, when it comes to misjudging motivations, this episode seems like a wonderful example of all of the ways in which that can happen and why it can happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> start off with your typical... I was, I'm, I was reading the chat. I'm not sitting here watching the OU game or anything else happening. I'm paying attention. Um, no, yeah, it begins with your standard ship-to-ship confrontation about something. And uh, quickly... De- and then you get into, oh, my God, are we going to have a Gorn down on the planet? Are we going to have some wacky fight? You know, mano a mano that we thought we'd left behind with the 60s. <laughs> what is Next Generation doing when these, the captains are pulled down to a planet to, you know, fight it out themselves? And that is not what happens. But no. it's, you can tell good old diplomatic Picard is up to his eyeballs trying to keep this from being a Kirk moment. Yeah. And, and yeah. they finally do. But it, yeah, it totally turns on, it's a Joe Minoski special, t- totally turns on language. And yes. that's the first, this may have been the first episode or the first one in a long time that I, back in the day, watching these new each week, I thought, that is a show, that's not a murder mystery, it's not a court drama, it's not a comedy, it's not some format done the next gen way. That was truly a science fiction plot that couldn't have just been done on some, you know, any other one hour drama, because it yes. was revolving around language and alien language and 
and etc. Absolutely. Um, it really is a episode that lets Picard shine in his in his more negotiator, ambassador, uh, diplomat um, identity that that we see with Picard. Well, we don't see him right. as an ambassador except alternate futures, I guess. But yeah, all of those those kind of things that um, that. In other episodes, we get um, see, uh, scenes of it, or we we see him and Troy talking about how are we going to approach this negotiation, or Picard, as a, I was on a panel many years ago with Rod Roddenberry, and he mentioned how Picard's always uh, shepherding ambassadors around the galaxy that always kind of stuck, stuck out of my head. I love that, that phrasing. Um, but here we get to see him shine. We get to see all of his strengths in trying to overcome this communication gap that they have. And as this episode unfolds, you realize that this um, this alien um, knew that this is the only way the two of them will be able to find a way to communicate and cooperate. And that is so important um, to this this other individual. And, and, and we see, when it comes to misjudging motivations, we see the problem of language. Mm-hmm. Especially when two people are coming to a situation um, with a very different meaning behind words. And in Darmok, we see a completely different way of communicating, communicating through storytelling right. and metaphor. And it seems so alien, but Larry, we do this all the time. We use metaphor all the time. We use shorthands for experiences that um, that other people might not even know about. You and I could easily uh, de-evolve the show into a Californian thing and start spitting out all these examples. That, or a Midwestern uh, thing. Or a, or, or a Midwestern thing. Yeah. yeah, or an American theme. I was going to um, say, we have a chat group here that's global enough that I find... There's times when... we. You know, I have enough uh, Portal 47 members and people on my different audiences that every once in a while somebody will say, okay, I, you know, they misconstrue an American metaphor or trope or whatever. And you have to, yeah. you just realize that we're not totally universal yet. No, I loved yeah. in Darmok, basically the bottom line was universal translator had no problem translating words. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's <laughs> you know, not it a universal gib- interpreter. gibberish phrases and not gibberish words. It's, yes. You know. Yes, it's it's so, as a fan who's seen a lot of Star Trek, it's so satisfying to see the technology fail sometimes and to see it really push our characters because uh, it, it lets you see how, um, how talented these folks are and how well-trained and experienced they are, that they can still navigate these situations even if their universal translator is unhelpful in this moment. Even if they're um, animated, yes. <laughs> yeah, even if, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is, um, so we just love this episode. Um, I think there's there's so much meat to this episode. We could spend our entire time talking about this. One, one. more thing about this episode was I was yeah. amazed at when, it, when there were parts that show a lot of good old Star Trek technology and there are a lot of Easter eggs, in it, and I was like, they just keep hitting it out of the park as far as recreating, you know, visual canon. Are you talking about Lower Decks? I'm talking about the Lower Decks episode. Yeah, Veritas. Yeah, yeah. Um, There was a lot... We saw a lot of ships. Saw a lot of... The the good old Romulan vertebrae. Oh, my gosh. Cloak vertebrae. But it was was just really done well. There's a museum of ships or something on Vulcan, of all things. 
And I was like, oh, there's a th- and there's a this and, and not all Vulcan either. But I, I um... yeah, yeah, there's a, a very famous ship from a movie that won our poll this week. We had a poll about what movie to rewatch. Um, oh, that to have one, a, yes. of a community watch and Star Trek First Contact won the poll. Um, obviously, because it's an amazing movie. And there's a very famous ship from that movie in this the museum. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and I saw it, and it made me so happy to see that, that ship. Um, and some of those references they do in a way that it's not so overtly in your face. But if, if you're, if you've been watching for a while, you'll pick up on this stuff. And if you've been watching for a while, you might, um, what you might we're know. The theme. Yeah, let's, um, in, in terms of misjudging motivations, Larry, there's another episode that, Next to Darmok, this is the one that came up. Um, Devil mm-hmm. in the Dark. Uh, this is probably one of... <sighs> anyone... Uh, when I usually talk to folks who have only seen the original series and watched it as it came up, this is one that always comes up in discussion. This is this like is a sleeper an... that hardcore fans, I don't think, think about. Everybody goes to Muck Time and Sitting on the Edge and Mirror Mirror and all that, and people... Yes overlook uh, the horde but but this is the one that i'll always know that my when my kids were little like when they were four and five and six this is the one star trek that not that they'd seen a lot or i didn't force it on them mm-hmm. but all the time they would uh and i had stepkids when they were really little and they first were we were first in each other's orbit they'd come to my house and i had the tape library and they would always say Play the Horda! Play the Horda! We want to see Really? The yeah, when they were four, five, six, yeah. And I've, they'd seen the Tribbles and, you know, a few other shows that I thought were good to show them. But they always wanted to see the, which I thought there's, there's a thing there. Cause to me, the Horda is yeah. scary if you're a little kid. Yeah. But it's like, I would have thought so. been overcoming the, yeah. Huh. That's, um, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, I'll have to try that with my daughter in a, in a year or two. Um, she right now really loves, um, the Wrath of Khan, minus all the violence. We just okay. skipped through, we skipped through, you don't, uh, you don't do the uh, Seti eel in the ear. No, no. Um, and we, we have watched all of, from beginning to end, uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And she loves that one because we're in Northern California and she kind of recognizes some of the stuff. And um, she just has so much fun watching. Uh, You've taken watching her to the, the Sausalito Cetacean Institute. I have. I have. So there's a little bit of uh, uh, she, she's picking up on some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Devil in the Dark, this is um, what I like about Darmok is it's about the challenge of communication. And what I like about Devil in the Dark is it, it speaks to what we see and our biases. Um, just even, even in your example right here, Larry, well, doesn't it look scary? But the kids love it. And so completely misjudging what, how they might see it. Um, and it's, this episode well, is so much. Well, I mean, it does about... take out two or three red shirts of different shirt colors. <laughs> Not just if red. You're so. gonna watch some Star Trek. Some red shirts are going down. I think that's just to be expected. Um, I think someone did uh, someone did a bit of an academic study on red shirts, and apparently mm-hmm. red shirts are no more likely to die in a, an original series episode than. Per, yeah, per capita, I think they're looking yes. at how many how many <laughs> yeah. are assigned. Yeah, that's uh, using that's using the old original blueprints breakdown of the divisions, but still. <laughs> um, but it, this, this, ep- 
this episode gets to what our visual bias in what um, in how people might look and our expectations around that. Um, and I love that. And as um, since we're on the topic a little bit, uh, since I alluded to Star Trek Four, um, and Tim said the one with the whales, Larry, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Star Trek Four because there's a lot of misjudging motivations, especially with this moment right here um, mm. with Star Trek Four. Um, the communication. It's not a weapon. Or lack thereof. Yeah. Or lack thereof, exactly. Um, this alien probe, it's not a weapon. It's trying to communicate. And it's not trying to communicate with the humans on Earth. Spock has that great line. What is it? Um, only I'm sorry, can pro- your father come to the door? <laughs> is your mother home? Right. Kid humans? Yeah. Right. So. Right. It's, it's that kind of moment. Um what does Spock say? Spock says only human pride would lead uh, lead you to think that this message is meant for them. There's like many intelligent species on Earth. Um, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's it's a beautiful moment that Spock has. And when you're when we're thinking about misjudging motivations, it seems like pretty much everyone but Spock was kind of misjudging the motivations of this probe. Yeah, including everybody at Starfleet Command and the UFP. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I really, I really love that. And you could also talk about later on, on, um, on Earth. Um, it was, uh, it took a little bit of time for, um, um, what is her name, Larry, the scientist, um, the, the whale expert. Oh, Jillian. Uh, yes. I can't want to say Jillian Anderson. Jillian Taylor. Jill, uh, Taylor? Gosh, and her character's name is, yes. Jillian, Jillian, Jillian's the name of the character, isn't it? Oh, someone's gonna, somebody's gonna gonna let us know. (laughs) Someone's going to excoriate me here. This is the problem with doing the show Saturday morning. We haven't quite woken up. Um, but she doesn't quite believe Kirk uh, at first, and she she believes he's a part of the military. And uh, to her credit, Kirk and Spock just look like such fish out of water and they can't even get themselves to uh to Sausalito by themselves you know they don't know what's going on yeah okay uh Jillian yes um thank you Dan thank you Tim Mm -hmm. um thank you for uh, for clearing that up so um you know misjudging the motivations there of Kirk and Spock um especially when Spock goes down and like mind melts with the whale of course they're looking at that from their own perspective and thinking, what the heck is going on? Is this? They are not the hell. You're whales. whales. <laughs> Spock, no one really believes you. No one takes you seriously if you don't use any colorful metaphors here. Um, was was Star Trek Four on our watch list this week for the poll, Larry? Did we put Star Trek? Uh, I don't. I, I don't think so. Maybe it was. I, I know First Contact and something else. I, was there another movie? Anyway. If it's not, we're gonna have to do a, a watch of that because it's just it's just too much fun uh, to watch that movie. Um, so I, I think that's that's another really great example here. Um, let's let's jump around the canon a little bit, Larry. Well, uh, one, I, one and I didn't pull an image from it. I almost did, yeah. but it was going to be a little hard to display. That whole the 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 hoarder riff you were on about playing with our cultural expectations of what is good and bad and all that yeah. and the 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 one that comes to mind even though it's only a voyager um 
is the Voyager episode, not the movie, but the Voyager episode Nemesis, where the whole thing is played on its it's told through Chakotay's yes. eyes, I think mainly. But the whole point of the show is the scary looking guys are the good guys, and the normal yes. humanoid looking guys are the bad guys, and it totally messes with Janeway and the crew. It's like a lower decks thing where Chakotay is the lower decker and the command crew is blithely dancing along with the bad guys thinking they're the good guys, but it's totally, because the bad guys look like Delta Quadrant Nausicans. I mean, they have the right, scary right, right. mouth treatment and all of that, right? Right. Very much in need a perfect, of a bath. It's a perfect slap on the wrist about, uh, you know, watch, don't let your cultural biases, yeah. you know, yeah. play into. Well, you know. it, it, that episode sort of reminds me of that great Twilight Zone episode where mm-hmm. um, uh, the person is injured and disfigured and um, the the doctors try their best well, to, yeah, 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 <laughs> a little bit of a Tellarite-ness there uh, at the end. But the doctors say, like, I'm sorry, we couldn't do anything. And then they take the bandages off and say, oh, she's she's hitting. Oh, people are, like, gasping. Oh, my gosh. Um mm-hmm. And when she's revealed, <laughs> she's revealed to have a lot of traditional, she's uh, just a traditional a appearance of be- of beauty, right? Yeah. Not, I mean, she's not just human, but she right. looks very yes. beautiful by the standards of the time. And the cameras turn to the doctors, and the doctors <laughs> look like Tellarites a bit. Um, and um, it's it's but a at great... least they all had their masks on, so that's something <laughs> they to did. Say. They did, even um, even in that Twilight Zone era. Um, well, on the, on the topic of Voyager, um, <laughs> let's dive into another episode. This is an episode, Larry, I just, um, I really enjoy a lot. Um, Living Witness is mm-hmm. the episode here. Um, uh, can you go to the one with the people in the, it? That is the one with the people in it. No, the one with the people. There's one with them in a. They're in the mess hall, or not the mess oh, hall. Oh, 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 that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant. Um, I thought you meant the the other one. Uh, this this moment. That one, yes, yeah, yes. The one that's not the K three picture. Okay. <laughs> so this image uh, or this episode, for those of you who don't remember, <laughs> is an episode where the doctor wakes up in this uh, future museum and part of his program has been saved in this like exhibit. And there's this exhibit to the Voyager crew and all their facts are, are kind of wrong. They, some, there's some truths there, but they're kind of like twisted in a way. And this gets to misjudging motivations in terms of, um, looking back at history and getting the information wrong and misunderstanding. It's like taking the, yeah, taking a dinosaur skeleton and yes. trying to extrapolate what it looked like and having it be comically wrong, you know. Right, right. Dinosaurs do not look like the way they look like in Jurassic Park. They actually <laughs> look a bit more bird-like and had feathers. Um, yeah, th- that's, um, I-, I think that's a great parallel here, Larry, not only because it makes me mm-hmm. think of one of my favorite Voyager episodes, which is Distant Origin, but mm-hmm. it also, um, it's a real world problem. Like I, I grew up with those images of the dinosaurs, the way we see them in Jurassic Park, and it's just doesn't reflect what our current thinking is about what dinosaurs probably look like. Um, very similar thing is playing out here in, in Living Witness is misjudging the motivations at, of the past. And 
Now, the past is always alive in the present. And if we, if we don't really understand where some of these problems originated from, we're not really well equipped to deal with the way they play out in present day. Even when you think you're, you're, you're building off of clues and you think you're an educated, you know, you think you have good resources and good background and you're having to extrapolate from something without a, without a living witness there to tell you, even, even in that, you know, there was a little bit of inter- internal political uh, reality going on for that, called the Kyrians, I think, mm-hmm. for that world. And it's, that whole episode is just bizarre. It's kind of like the Silver Blood Alien episodes. It's like a completely fish-out-of-water <laughs> point of view. We're, we're on a planet hundreds of years in the future where the, the original Voyager crew has died. Whatever happened to Voyager, they're dead yeah, by now. We have, yeah, and we you're have watching idea. a yeah. backup of the Doctor talk about everybody but they've been totally misrepresented on this planet where the Voyager crashed, supposedly, or his, you know, his left behind. But their input in this planet was a total, you know, oh, here's why we have the first, here's how we have the prime directive. Totally affected this world, but they've gone on for another few hundred years beyond that, interpreting yeah. what the Voyager, you know, interaction with their culture meant and having it all wrong and suddenly having this this backup copy of the doctor who was there it's like it's like thawing the guy out of ice and having him come to life you yeah. know and tell you it's like the 2000 year old man without uh, uh, Car- uh mel brooks and carl reiner but anyway but it's, so it's a totally one of those you know a totally not ordinary shows but yeah it's a great lesson and it's it a great lesson things are misinterpreted but also how the misinterpretations play into political you know, yes. contemporary political yes. hands, but yes, even from hundreds of years ago. Yes. Um, Brian has a really great comment here. That's one of the best <laughs> things about Star Trek: the concept that the unknown or the other is not necessarily your enemy. Um, and then Libby followed that up with, uh, or someone with uh, totally different views. And uh, I just had this values. Sorry, sorry, values. Yes, yes. Um, Larry, have you ever had this moment where you? And someone else are having a conversation. You're reminiscing about something that might have happened 10, 20 years ago. And you both have a completely different view of what happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just had this moment last night, actually. I was, uh, I was talking to my dad and we were talking about, um, there's this, uh, my family moved from uh, one town to another when I was in second or third grade. And I hated it because I I was a socially anxious kid. I had a very hard time making new friends when we moved. And it felt like it took three, four years for me to even recover from that. And then my dad brought up the idea that um, of moving again to another neighborhood. Um, and I was in middle school at this time. And I remember telling my dad, no, I don't want you to move. I'm, I'm really like settled in well to this school now. I have friends. I don't want to leave all that. We were talking about that. And my dad said, I don't remember the conversation going that way. I remember you threatening me, crying and screaming and threatening that if I, if we move, you are going to completely give up on school and you're going to intentionally fail all of your classes and oh. like you're going to be you know you're just going to throw your future away and i'm like <clears throat> i don't remember saying that at all um i have no memory of ever saying something like that and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there's probably aspects mm-hmm. of truth to both but 
our memory is not perfect. Memory changes. Our memory is more like Wikipedia articles. They can be edited by future information. People can come in and change it. And who knows what the what was actually true back then? Um, this kind of stuff, like we see in Living Witness, happens all the time. Absolutely, it happens all the time. Yeah. No. I you asked me if I remembered that, and I had I. I, one that finally popped into mind just happened a few years ago, the, the reminiscing. But it, we were working on, we were shooting for, we were shooting, uh, talking people for, uh, my documentary, the, the Connor Raff. Mm-hmm. And one of my best friends <laughs> was, and I, I'm personally involved. This is my documentary about an infamous, uh, meltdown convention, the first big one really that happened in the 80s in Houston. And, uh, there's a personal string to the story for me as well as the big picture too, because I had I had uh, three friends and uh, two friends and my little brother. But uh, when we first arrived and we kind of were flung into the chaos that was happening that we talk about with everybody, I was re- I was reminding or talking about uh, going back and forth between two venues, and and my friend as we were on camera as he was on camera talking he goes. Oh, he remembered, he goes, oh, that's right. You kept running off and we kept wondering where you were going and you kept coming back. I didn't know you were in the room where all the stars were and everything was fun. I didn't know that. And I'm like, well, I kept coming back. I didn't like run off and leave you. <laughs> but it was kind of like, oh, that was just five years ago. And we, we got into a, a collision of the memories. But yeah, it was, uh, it's a really odd moment. When you suddenly, especially if it's somebody you know and tr- it's not some stranger, it's someone you know and trust, like you and your dad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The, these moments happen all the time. Um, uh, Dan actually just completely took the idea or the words right out of mouth, my mouth, where he said, "Each time you remember something, your brain remakes the memory." So, so many errors make sense. And Brian also said, "Memory is constantly being reconstructed," and um, mm-hmm. Victoria. Said it's it's hard to figure out what's the truth, and all of yeah. these things are are absolutely true. Every time you do think of something, you are recreating that memory, and what's in your head at this time, what's what you're seeing around you, your new memories, your all of the stuff changes how we remember well, things. I said Rashomon. I was kidding, but you know Star Trek has yes. Rashomon. Uh, in fact, Phil Barnes. Hello, Phil. If this is your first time with us, maybe not. Uh, he threw out a matter of perspective, which is kind of a clunky mm. episode of Next Generation. But the point being, it's the old, it's the classic of it. It is a trial, and all the witnesses are remembering things slightly differently, and some of them yes. have an agenda, and some of them yes. are just sincerely, you know, misremembering. It's also was it ex post facto did the same. Yeah. <laughs> oh look, it's yeah, another. Yeah. It's another Voyager that's rehashing a Star Trek plot. Um, yeah. Shh, don't tell anybody that. Sorry. Spoilers. <laughs> That's what Voyager did. Spoiler from uh, 1995. Uh, okay. Well, but Jared mentions that too. Is this is why eyewitnesses yes. to crimes can't that. be trusted 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um in fact, the way, the yeah. way witnesses are asked questions can have a huge impact on how they're remembering information. Um so absolutely it's it's hard. Um William um, hello, uh, William, uh, says, hi guys, Bill and Ron from Netherlands here. Mm-hmm. Hi, welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, we love, we love seeing new faces and we also love seeing, uh, people from the whole global community. Especially here. as little as I think we promoted the show this week. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, there's another one here, Larry. Let's let's jump in. I think what what's cool about the examples we pulled this week they they're all capturing different aspects of misjudging mm-hmm. motivations. So I want to dive into this one. When I, I brought this one in our in our prep, and you're like interesting example, Ali. You mean thirty um, minutes of texting last night? That our yeah. Prep- <laughs> Shh. Don't tell them our, our secret strategy of Prem. <laughs> Don't mention the war. Okay. <clears throat> but this episode right over yes. here, um, with the nanites, this mm. is, uh, this is such a beautiful episode of TNG for me because this was one of the first, um, I saw TNG a bit out of order when it was first airing. Um, I saw part of it in syndication and then part, uh, part of it I saw out as it was, uh, airing first run. So I think I saw this episode before I saw Measure of a Man. Um, I think Measure of a Man speaks to some of these to- similar topics. Um, what's the name of this episode again, Larry, with the nanites? Um, I know it's not called uh, Evolution. Within... Evolution, is that what it's called? Um, so. so in in this episode, we see, um, we see a, um, a human-made creation that is made to just uh, go and repair different parts of of the ships. And what Data uncovers, which also makes this such a wonderful, in some ways, a sequel uh, to Measure a Man, or at least a, an evolution of uh, the themes brought up in Evolution. Or at least Man. a prequel to the exocomps, which are nanites just a little bit larger. <laughs> that too, yeah, yeah, that too. Um, the uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I'm actually. Am I thinking of the exocomps? I might be thinking of the of the exocomps episode. Am With I describing the, the scientists that develops them and they're they're meant to be uh, like little uh, like little fire firefight like take on yes the, the yes that's what I thought I was describing. Am I describing nanites are de- were developed to you know, like you know they're always talking about using them in surgery. Well, we talk about them now. Yeah, yeah. Nanites are going to be our microscopic surgical repair, you know, and then they get adapted for, you know, the Borg are using them as nanoprobes. Um, that's what nanoprobes are, tiny nanites and Borg, you know, infrastructure. So I think I was talking about the exocomps. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I hate it when I do this. I, this happens, folks, this happens all the time. I you should describing... call your doctor, doctor. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, you should. Get you straight. My memory. See, my memory. This happens all the time where I describe part of an episode and Larry's like, oh, yeah, you're describing this. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that's what I'm describing. And then I continue to describe it. And Larry's like, no, you're actually describing two episodes. You've combined them. Oh, man, I cross the streams all the time. Conflation. Well, I was thinking... <laughs> the dopey game where you're mixing up Star Trek episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's play what episode Ali is talking about. Um, what episode? So I, was, I was talking about the Exocomp episode where where uh, Data discovers that these uh, these um, machines are actually alive. They're self aware. They're trying to pr- um, protect themselves. They're evolving. All this stuff is happening. And here's an episode <laughs> where. Um, misjudging motivations comes into play in terms of self-preservation and self-awareness. Um, things that most of the other um, sentient life forms here are not picking up, but data is. And maybe data is a bit more sensitive to it because people have questioned his sentience and his uh, self-awareness. 
Um, and Data's coming into it with a different perspective. I love the Exocomp episode. And uh, yeah, that was the episode I actually wanted to mention. Even though the uh, yeah the guest scientist that week was kind of clunky, and they named her Doctor Farallon, which was an yeah, I was like, really, guys, really, okay. <laughs> but you maybe it's out of but in the nineties. Farallon was a was a computing you know software company. Mm. <clears throat> Brian asks, Ollie crossed the streams or did he jump the timeline? I think I did a little bit of both. Um, I did not jump the ravine, though, as we see in Star Trek Generations, which crossed the streams and jumped the timeline. That, Generations does does both of those things. That's a baton. That's handing off. The, get your metaphor uh. straight. That was classic <laughs> baton, not cross. I was saving the galaxy while your grandfather was in diapers. Was that the line? Um, uh, no, that's that's Scotty, isn't that's it? Scotty? I can hear Scotty. Am I doing it again? Oh. I can just hear Scotty saying diapers. So, <laughs> no, you're right. He does say that. It's just that diapers just conjures up Scotty saying diapers. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great, uh, wacky Scotty. I, I love that, Larry. Um, there we go, folks. Um, I'm going to have some more of my Rectagino here. I- Keeping, I know we, we need to move along, but I'm, I, but I also have the sense that there's so much going on in the chat that I'm, I'm ignoring here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Victoria's uh, mentioned the ship. Uh, Jared says duet. Um, oh, duet Trek is a wonderful. Uh, here says yeah. beginning of Star Trek Beyond with the little aliens, whatever the hell they were. You know, the beginning Earth. of Star Trek Beyond reminded me a lot. The Lower Decks episode this week reminded me a lot of the beginning of Star Trek Beyond. There's a similar camera trick at play. Mm hmm. Which they didn't even get into with the courtroom in Star Trek Six, but it's also meant to evoke yeah. the yeah. Klingon court in Star Trek Six. Yeah, which Tim Hands uh, points out. Um, well, the thing about oh, uh, Cairo talks about uh, symbiosis, misjudgment, mm. where they first think it's a medical situation turns out to be a drug biz- business. Um, uh, Victoria says the might maneuver, which is what I was pointing out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in our, in our prep top, except that the Corbomite maneuver is another case. We got into this before about false, we were talking about false, fake news, false whatever. Beliefs. But Corbomite maneuver, Baylock is intentionally trying to be misleading. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not, a, kind it's of not a, on, yeah. I mean, he's, Kirk and company are doing, are, are, be, are misjudging motivations completely because that's exactly what they're, they're want to do. They're being manipulated to be there. It's not yeah, just on. There's a spectrum the Horda here. is not trying to hide anything. The Horda is just being the Horda. There's a spectrum here between um, <clears throat> believing something um, that might not be accurate to sharing something that might not be accurate to sharing something that is actually disinformation and designed to get people to believe false things. Kind of like prop. Uh, it, it's like propaganda. It's engineered to get people to uh, to believe things that aren't true to um, targeted campaigns to, to uh, really affect people's beliefs. There's a whole spectrum here. And, and I think that falls a bit more on the spectrum of uh, intent. There's more intent there with Corbinite maneuver. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm just scanning back through the chat so far. Uh, uh, here's the quote, Larry. <laughs> here's got the quote. I was driving starships. While your great grandfather was still in, in diapers. Diapers. That, 
It's a jo- <laughs> it's the Geordie line from Relics. That's what it is. I was trying to put um, it in a late movie, but that's oh, it. Yeah. I love that episode. I love. So I yes, love you were your generation's memory was. I was thinking you were right. I was just trying to remember where where the diapers came from. Anyway, we have a show. I to was, do. I'm sorry. I should be working on a show, and my mind keeps going into Star Trek trivia. I can't recognize <laughs> diapers. This is no, horrible. what's the so what's the Kirk line then from Generations? Um, I was out saving the galaxy See, while, well, yeah, while like what? we're in diapers. No, no, because that was Scotty. That That's was Scotty. I was driving starships while your great godfather grandfather was still in diapers. I think you'd be diapers. a little grateful for yeah. some help. I'll leave you to your work, Mister LaForge. Yeah, um, that's the Relic's line. Okay, whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm crossing the streams and I'm jumping the timeline. Sorry. Yes, it's folks. all within Star Trek. Uh, Linda says Enterprise is the cogenitor. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about Enterprise because I think Enterprise does this really well. So Larry, one, um, Wait, one, one observation on that generally yeah. is the more we talked about this misjudging motivations, what is that a key factor in? What's the big Star Trek concept? And it, cause it kept coming up in Cerritos, not just the fact that it's comic gold. It's the kind of thing that you make comedy out of. Oh, I misjudged this, said the plot of 47,000 million, uh, sitcoms. Um, <laughs> misjudging motivations is the big fear you avoid in first contact. And first, first contact, contact is such yeah. a part of communication and, you know, everything from the Horda on down. The Horda was a first contact with, with, um, with Janusians. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to yeah, say that? Ab- absolutely. But, um, but but since that's a thing, we keep coming into all these plots where misjudging motivations is key to something going wrong. You know, a yeah. first contact gone wrong is because of misjudging motive. You know, motivations. Yes. In the first time. <clears throat> and for all the so reasons we have that all we've of mentioned, these, uh, yeah. And for all the reasons we've mentioned, um, and this is something I want to talk about uh, in in a little bit once we get into um, the counselor's log is. Uh, we all experience these types of first contact situations all the time. Now, maybe it's not the first contact between two different sentient species, uh, but first contact with with uh, a person who you haven't met before, uh, first contact with a new community or a group of people. This happens on the internet all the time, where we're encountering all sorts of people, yeah, who we have no context for. We don't know what culture they're coming from, what understanding of history they have, how they communicate their uh, your, metaphors. Your first time in a foreign country or a new foreign country. Outside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, first time in, you know, a different part of town that you haven't been in before. There's so many ways in which we encounter people with whom we have no context of understanding their lived experiences happens all the time. And all of our great first contact stories from Star Trek are wonderful examples of that. I, uh, speaking of Enterprise, uh, Larry, um, the, all the Andorian human Vulcan storylines are mm-hmm. really wonderful for this, especially Archer and Shran. Um, their evolution and their understanding. We talked about friends last week and uh, a friend that really helps you grow. And we, we use them as an example. Uh, but boy, their relationship started in a place of very much misjudging motivation. Started with, uh, yeah, Andorian yeah. disruptor to the head is where it started. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And the Andorians were looking at humans 
based upon the human alliance with the Vulcans. And they did not have a good relationship with the Vulcans. So they really assumed that the motivations of humans were very much the same as the Vulcans. And then humans were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not besties. We're kind of stuck with the Vulcans. We just rode um, here together, guys. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> They've just been kind of helping us, but also not... Um, and we just got this new Warp 5 vessel, so, like, we're just excited to meet all the new people. We what's, just got what's new going car? on here. Yeah, yeah. Just out yeah. With... No, you've hit on a very important pivot here for Star Trek development, because you touch on this whole Andorian-Vulcan-Human triangle, and yeah. and you once you realize that moment, you totally get it why we never have any Telluride episodes. Oh, uh, can we add that to the drinking game, Jared, when uh, Larry makes a sad reference to the lack of Tellerite uh, representation in no, Star I love, Trek? <laughs> I, love, I love how right, when they when they develop that conflict, that tri- really, the lover's yeah. triangle of the Andorians thrown in with the Vulcan human dynamic yeah. was such a great, or it's one of the greatest contributions of Enterprise is yes. to throw early Federation, you know, human history, galactic history through that prism. And you go, oh, and it's a wonderful triangle to play off of. Yeah. The downside is it's like, there's no room in this love story for the Tellarites. And they, yeah. Yeah, anyway. I, I would say there's there's two things I, um, I'm i sad about. One is we didn't get to explore as much of that. And, and Dan mentioned the Zindi, and I think the Zindi are a very good example of misjudging motivation. I, I uh, brought that up last night. You did, you did, and um, that's that's a uh, there's a great arc that happens there over the course of that season. What bums me out about the Zindi arc is it also took a lot of real estate away from more episodes about the Federation, uh, the founding of the Federation, which we get in season four. Um, but yeah, yeah, I really I wish the show. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I do. You know what? I, what I think so interesting about um, Tellarites. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you I never do this, Larry, but I'm gonna give you my um uh, my love list of why I think the Tellarites are an amazing species. I, I I like to I like to poke fun at the Tellarites, but um the Tellarites serve an incredibly f- important role in in this group. And um that role is of honestly speaking to the elephant in the room. I just dropped a cultural idiom there that might not make sense outside mm-hmm. of America. Um, they're speaking to that issue that is a really important issue that other people might be afraid to talk about or don't want to talk about it. Right? Don't want to talk about. It. Yeah. Um, if anyone has seen the new um, um, Challenger, the final mission documentary on Netflix, it's really quite good, and uh, it it explores what was the human psychological failure behind the space shuttle challenger disaster. And it was re- it comes down to um, it, people were not listening to dissenting voices mm-hmm. and the Tellarites serve that very important function in every team, which is let's make sure we're listening to everyone's ideas, even the ideas that might be challenging or uncomfortable or make us feel uh, not so good about ourselves the Tellarites serve that role far more than humans or um, Andorians or Vulcans do. And gosh, I wish they did get more screen time because I love that idea. Is how can we make it right. safe to hear dissenting points of view? It's really important. Well, and, you know, they are introduced 
gosh, I just had an, I had another insight. I love it when you you learn something new every day. Are you enjoy? It's you know we we come out of the original series with all these all these things like little statues, these ide- people and concepts as little statues, and one of them is Vulcans, good, you know, Vulcans, peaceful, <laughs> rational, good, and and Enterprise started off, and there are some parts that I was kind of like, eh. You know, you've ruined the Enterprise. We have to fix the Vulcans with the whole trilogy in the fourth season. But by the time Discovery comes around, they've the, the strongest thing about Discovery so far to me, and it drove people crazy, not so much about Burnham being shoehorned in as this foster daughter that we never knew about, but how they've layered onto Sarek, and by extension, Sarek and his family, and the thing that nobody wanted to look at about Sarek. Sarek was married to two human women. How many other Vulcans did they, what the hell kind of, you know, pioneer slash outcast slash pioneer was Sarek in his own culture? He was this high muckety muck. He was an ambassador, yada, yada. But he did seem like he traveled more. Now, when, now, when you go back and look at all this, Sarek seems like he, remember, he was a Federation ambassador. He wasn't just a Vulcan ambassador running around serving Vulcans. It's almost like yeah. he's. He's the I don't know, and this will this will sync with a lot of folks. When you're a stranger in your own, in a, not a stranger in a strange land. When you're a <laughs> outcast among your own people, maybe or not an outcast, but you feel that way. Yeah. That where my mind goes to is so many people I know who are on the uh, who are gay or on the on the continue on the queer continuum who grew up in some rural, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, a red state. And by the time they get to college, they go to college and they never go. They go to New York or L.A. or San Francisco or Denver, Houston. They go to some big urban area, probably far from home and probably out of their own home state. And I always get that feeling that that's like a a metaphor going on here for Sarek. He had two human wives. He had he apparently he at least if he wasn't married to her, he had a kid with a Vulcan priestess. Now, thank right. you, Cybok story, retcon did. And in the middle of all that, they've now he's raised a Vulcan, I mean, a human, you know, Stepped taken out. on a, a, Vulc, a human um, foster daughter because she yeah. was orphaned. Or, yeah, yeah, foster right, daughter. Right, right. People keep yeah. saying, Spock's got a sister. And it's like, no, he's, he has this, well, they were, it's a family. The family's complicated. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. it's not like Sarek and Amanda hid a kid that they had together. No, they took it. But but then that's the thing. Cybok, I mean, uh, Sarek never t- and Spock never talked about Cybok. So the example was set for the whole the whole kerfuffle about Michael. At first, I was kind of going, "This is so derivative and duplicative, and do we have to go over this ground?" But by the time they and God bless them, the poor the the poor Discovery season one writers, whoever was in the office that week, whoever was on the payroll before it changed again. <laughs> but that's one thing that show did the first season was give a whole. 15 more layers to Sarek and Sarek's family. And yes. what, what, I, what I got off on this tangent was to get back to our talk about Tellarites and the, the, the picture we got in Journey to Babel that sat stagnant for so long about Andorians and Tellarites both, and then the Enterprise started to finally flesh it out a little bit, mainly on the Andorian side, but still is all this. And, and the thing that Sarek does a disservice when he's – part of it is the punching, the punching bag of the moment. But when he says Tellarites do not argue for a reason, they simply argue, which was very belittling. Mm-hmm. And so for mm-hmm. 40 years, it's like, oh, Tellarites, worse than, worse than Ferengi about being launched and then abandoned, you know. Mm-hmm. At least court, the, the Ferengi's finally got court. 
and I know I'm on a tangent. I'm going to shut up real quick. But my point here is Enterprise gave the ability not just what you had said about about that, but showing that that it's not just that um, Tellarides have arguing as a fetish or some kind of character flaw, but that they fleshed out a little bit more to show that debate is an art form with them. What logic is yes. to a Vulcan and, yes. and combat is to a Klingon, debate is to a Tellarite. And some people go, oh, politicians, they can say whatever, they can make whatever they need to have happen sound yeah. like it's, you know, they can mealy mouth anything. And you can badmouth debate, but debate can also be clarifying. And I'd never thought of it what you just said about being mm-hmm. the one to bring up the elephant in the room, the idiom mm-hmm. again. So anyway, I know we got off on a thing. This is supposed to be misjudging. Well, but no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie it together. I'm going to okay. tie it together um, and and say that um, it's uh, the Tellarites are a beautiful example of the theme we're talking about. They are, you know, I, I, oh, I referenced well, them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was. This was all part of. Someone mentioned the Joker earlier in the comments. This is all part of the plan. Uh, it was completely that. No, I just did. I not only did it take us out of Star Trek, I took us way out into uh, comic books and and uh, Heath Ledger's Joker. The thing I was going to say here is, you know, I mentioned the Tellarites in, in reference to the Twilight Zone episode. And the, the appearance of something that is so far removed from, um, from these ideas we have about human beauty that they, they look like pigs, which is kind of a, a very insulting thing to say to a yes. human, right? And, um, to, to have, uh, the, the, your immediate judgment is this is repulsive, that they are, um, they don't care for social, social rules. They are argumentative. You don't want to be near them. Um, they're also arrogant. I, they're arrogant. Yeah, yeah. But they also hold some of the the most important strengths that we need um, in groups and for groups to to function well and to flourish. You need someone who's going to argue with you these points before you make a big decision. And if we had more people like that at NASA, the Space Shuttle Challenger might not have blown up. You know, if we had more people like that in the room, um, John F. Kennedy might not have invaded uh, the Bay, and we wouldn't have had the Bay of Pigs disaster. There are so many big examples of that where there, there we didn't have Tellarites in the room. We didn't have someone who said, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Have you thought about all of these things that can go wrong? Hold on, hold on, hold on. What are we missing here? Mm-hmm. Do you have any experience related to this community that you're talking about? Or are you just pulling examples from stereotypes and movies that you have? I, I argue that we probably need a little bit more Tellarite intellectual humility. And while they might be arrogant socially, they do have this intellectual humility where they they don't necessarily believe that um, everyone everyone knows exactly what they're talking about, you know. Um, so I think we all need a little bit more of that intellectual humility right now. Well, if I if I had known we were going to go this, t- I would have had an awesome awesome K three for today if I'd known our conversation was going to take this turn. But instead, <laughs> you can always do it audible. I, no, no, no. This is too good a one. So I'm just going to file this one away and I'll right. save it for a save it. We'll, 
don't now don't file it in the next 47 years of life support live we will come back to <laughs> now larry just don't file it in the track files because that's your other show with your other friend save it for life support live okay uh, we're pinky, we're claiming pinky, that one pinky swear okay <laughs> pinky swear there we go yeah um Speaking of American cultural idioms that no one else is going to understand. Thank goodness um, I had 80s movies or I never would have known what pinky swear was. You know, teen, teen. <laughs> I had no idea what pinky swear was. Oh, I'm gosh. I'm trying Larry. to catch up. And after that, I'm going to take a rest after that rant. But I'm so glad. It's a good I, rant. I uh, Scotty, you just earned your pay for the week. I'm so glad you took my rant there. And uh, But I was trying to be revelatory. I just didn't think it was going to have anything to do with our topic. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. See how, um, see how political you are. You can take anything and make it relevant. Yeah, Cairo's got a little bit of a, a away mission I was uh, for that, us. Yeah. yeah, you need someone the in the room advocate. playing devil's advocate. Yeah, so one of the best ways to address this, um, and th- this is a problem called groupthink, where people are sort of... Um, I mean, I was actually thinking situation. of, I wish there were Tellarites in the uh, LBJ Vietnam room and the W oh, yeah. Iraq room. Oh my gosh! Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we won't even get into contemporary examples because that list is way too long and <laughs> way too difficult and emotional. But um, one of the best ways to deal with this is actually to appoint someone to be the quote-unquote devil's advocate. If you're not familiar with that term, it means someone who's arguing against what everyone else is is saying. And um, actually designating someone to have that role in a meeting kind of lifts the pressure off of uh, going against the group. And if that's their job for this meeting is to kind of argue against um, and think about other things that might be missed, it makes it a little bit easier. The other thing, Larry, the question to always ask in these situations is, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen if we make that decision and really dive into it? Um, that's always uh, another great uh, strategy uh, to, to go. Yeah, on. I was just going to say, newspapers and a lot of other organizations and structures have ombudsmen that do that yes. very thing. And yes. the government is supposedly having independent inspector generals who are supposed to fulfill that, you know, that mission too, if they're not all gutted. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a, you have the designated hitter <laughs> or the designated yes. hit backer or whatever, hitter back. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Who's, uh, who takes, but yeah, you're right. They take all that. That's their job. So no one can attack them for, hopefully for, <laughs> supposedly not attack them for being the contrarian. Right. So, um, should we, Larry, um, there's, we could keep talking about, uh, the canon here. Um, uh, there's one more example I just want to share just before I, we get into. I feel like uh, I sent you some Im- some more images we should maybe hit. You did. And this is yes. the one. This is the last oh, one. Oh, this was we, yours. This was your Yeah, favorite. this was mine. Um, so I do think there's some misjudging motivations here in terms of Section 31. Um, we see in the very first episode of Section 31 in Deep Space Nine where Bashir has very much, much misjudged the motivations of Sloan. Now, I know Sloan is um, intentionally deceiving Bashir, but there's this aspect of misjudging. He's trying to motivation. out Garrick there. Yeah, he is. Uh, that was another favorite example of mine in, in our prep is we were thinking about Garrick and we're like, is there an example here from Garrick? And then we're kind of like, 
Well, it's like every example with Garrick is misjudging motivations in every moment and permutation it's of like, Garrick. Go back to the beginning when they're trying to figure out who he is. And that was, yes. you know, everybody else versus Garrick is what I meant. But yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, gosh, what a. This is the problem with Deep Space Nine examples. Once you start unraveling the tapestry of Deep Space Nine examples, um, you can spend hours and hours uh, going over them. Um, Jared, that was one one for you. A little reference for you. Um, uh, misjudging motivations can come into play when um, you might be deceived and not really knowing that you're being deceived. That's kind of wh- where I wanted to go with this. And this is very much a challenge, Larry, for us right now, where um, wh- when we see information on social media... Or on YouTube, um, how many times have, have folks, especially with this has become an increasing problem with Star Trek, is there's a lot of um, really intense videos on YouTube. And uh, what's the motivation of these? Of uh, why are these out there? And um, is it, it's very hard to know. Are you, are you talking about toxic Trek YouTubers? Yes. Yes, I am. And it's it's very hard to know what are the motivations, why are people creating this stuff? Do they actually believe these things or is this just a wonderful way to get views? Like there is a formula to having very successful YouTube videos enrage people. You know, you can title something the truth about blah, blah, blah and promise that you're going to reveal this truth that no one else really knows and um, leave people very angry about something. Um, those videos do very well, um, and you can make those. And, and why are people creating this? this it content? sounds scary. What's really scary is if someone took that kind of a concept out of Star Trek and, oh, I don't know, applied it to politics. Now, that would be scary. Larry, now don't get silly here. That would never happen. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah, let's just keep it help to Help us, the... people. Help us in America. We're really struggling. <laughs> just keep that within uh, the play, you know... You know, I, but seriously, like, Pete, this was not my universe at all. This was not my realm at all. But I heard about it on the side. And mm-hmm. in the two and three and four years since, it's like this all started with Gamergate. Yeah. 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 That it's was not a, a gamer example of it. But yeah. I would hear these things about male misogynistic gamers tearing down, uh, you know, female game columnists and game reviewers and game. And I'm like, what the he- is game? I didn't remember gaming being such a. You know, has the gaming world exploded so much with mass popularity that, you know, the, you know, the, the game industry is bigger than the movie industry by box office and all that. Is it gotten so big that there's this huge misogynistic streak in it? But now I, I see it through the eyes of what's happened everywhere else and go, yes, that was artificially blown up to where people knew something had changed. And so suddenly it was this big scandal, but really, it was people getting in and, you know, all you had to do was double the amount of negativity and suddenly it's still a minority, but it's, but it's now it's, twice it's, as big as it used to be. So it's very noticeable and it makes the feeling of things going to the shits. I mean, and it's, it, like and it's weaponizing. It's, it's yes. weaponizing information for uh, purposes of profit or for purposes of uh, propaganda and persuasion. And why I think this relates to misjudging motivations is we might not even know someone is trying to manipulate us 
Um, and, and that's why it, it connects to Section 31 and, and that episode with mm. Julian Bashir. He saw Sloan in one way, and J- Bashir had really the best interests in that very first episode of Section 31, and he had no idea until it's revealed at the end of how much he was being manipulated. He was going through this test, and things, uh, he thought, he, he was approaching it in the, the, the good Starfleet officer way that he should, but he had no idea what was actually happening and what the true motivations were. Um, so I think that's this is one of the most difficult examples. He brought a um, he brought a hand phaser to a ship phasers fight. <laughs> right, right. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Um, before we go into the counselor's log here, um, Jared is saying locations that were nominated for life support live retreat in 2021 but didn't work out. Conception Junction, Missouri, Rough and Ready, California, uh, Knockin Stiff, Ohio, Hooker, Oklahoma, Beaver Crossing, South. Dakota. I've driven through Hooker, Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> it's not nearly as exciting as the. Uh... Oh, we will move right along to the counselor's log. <laughs> so, Larry, um, uh, the counselor's log, this is a, um, a chance for us to do a little bit of a deeper dive into why some of these problems occur and uh, for me to use my background in psychology to kind of explain some of this stuff. And there's, um, there's one idea that clearly came up, and this is... Um, a fundamental idea, actually, in psychology and specifically social psychology. It's called the fundamental attribution error. It's such a basic thing that happens in so many situations that it has that it's in the title of, of this, uh, of this concept, the fundamental mm-hmm. attribution error. What can it I, basically means. Yeah. Can I, as you enter this wonderful topic, can you go solo screen and let me check on something yeah. quickly? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Okay. Let me, um, I'm going to boot you I don't off. Want to interrupt your See you in a bit. Uh, no worries, okay, no I'll worries. Be right back. Um, so what I want to talk about with the fundamental attribution error is this is exactly what happens when, let's say you're, you're driving in a car and you're running late and you're speeding and maybe you cut someone off. And maybe you feel bad about it for a moment, but then you say, you know, well, I'm in a hurry. I really have to get to this job interview or I have to go pick up my kid. Um, I have to go meet someone, whatever it might be. When, when we do things, we make a lot of situational explanations uh, for why we're doing that. Well, the reason I did this is because I'm running late and I need to pick up that person. And if I, if I don't, then there's going to be all these bad things. And the reason I'm running late is because all this other stuff was happening in my day. All that kind of thing. So for ourselves, we make a lot of situational explanations. But if we're driving and someone else cuts us off and we get angry, well, that person is an a-hole. Well, that person is a bad driver. Well, that person doesn't know what they're doing. We make a lot of dispositional explanations for other people's behavior. We do something bad. We explain away why we're doing something bad. Someone else does something bad. They did something bad because they're a bad person. That's the fundamental attribution error. Uh, we, we also do this for people that we're very close to or we are friends with or love. We're much, it's much easier for us to make 
explanations of why people might do things, the better we know them. Whereas if we know people less, we, we blame them for why they're doing all this sort of stuff. Um, if you have any good examples of the fed, fundamental, I was about to call it the Federation attribution error. That's not it. If you have any good examples of the fundamental attribution error, I want to um, see them in, in the comments below. So the question comes up, why? Why do we do this? Um, well, we talked in a past episode a long time ago. I had people close their eyes and imagine an apple and what color is it? And you bite into the apple. Do you see a core? And this was uh, an example of schemas. Our, our memories are actually generalities. And our memories are related to um, basic examples of, of experiences we've had. And so when it comes to, um, when it comes to this concept um, of the fundamental attribution error, um, it, it's, the problem is really we don't know a lot about other people. Our memories and ideas about other people are so basic compared to our, our memories and ideas about ourselves. Our memories about ourselves are this very complex web that has so many different experiences there. Um, and similarly with people we're, we're very close to, but people we don't know, our memories and ideas about them are often based upon what we see in pop culture, basic examples from history, stereotypes and other biases mm -hmm. uh we we just don't have a lot of information on especially, other people especially stereotypes and biases especially yeah and the less that's, we I mean, know that's the someone, definition of what they are they're the we extrapolate yes. to the yes yes and and larry especially the less we know about someone or the, the very first time we're coming into contact with them are these first contact examples all we have are stereotypes to go mm -hmm. off of that's all we have, our, mm. our knowledge about other people. So um, this is one of the most basic problems we have when it comes to misjudging motivations is the fundamental attribution error. Um, Larry, you ever run into this? I'm sure I'm sure you've experienced this. I experience this all the time. Gosh, no. I've never misjudged anything on first <laughs> glance. I don't know. Do you want to switch yeah. us? Do you want to flip? Can you flip us back to our? I think I can flip plate? us back. I'm gonna. Whoa, whoa, there we are. There we are. Okay, we're back. We're back here. Um. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm checking the comment section here. If anyone has had any experience with um with the fundamental attribution here, uh, no. I'm not seeing any examples here. You just went at all. too. You just you just went too deep. That's all. We're not we're not on that <laughs> PhD level with you. Um, <laughs> at that real doctor level, we're not there quite yet. So Dan Dan mentioned um, seems to me the search part two is an example. Um, Dan, mm -hmm. I'm thinking here if you're responding to a previous comment or um, talking about the fundamental attribution error, the search is one of my favorite episodes of TNG because it explains the makeup limitations of Star Trek so well. <laughs> <laughs> I really I really like. Um, like that explanation um i'm trying to think if there's there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of misjudging why other people might be here why the um this alien race might have um even created this chase this this search project and at the end when it's revealed you know it was our great hope that the only way 
you could solve this puzzle is by working together. And if you've done that, you've overcome all these differences. And mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like our, our children have sort of come into their own. And people kind of look at each other and like, those Cardassians are like, hmm, I thought there'd be some great, like, you know, information here. And the Romulans are just very stoic in their disappointment. Um, I think Picard <laughs> might be the only one who's really excited about this this massive discovery here. But uh yeah, that's one of my uh that's one of But my then the Romulan does episodes. go out and get all Mark Lennard and say, you know, oh well maybe we could someday work together. Yes. There's this it totally yes. under totally explains between the Romulan commander a hundred years earlier and this guy, it totally explains the whole um, Romulan underground movement. Like, who are the... You know, it's it's kind of like the Romulan says, maybe in a few movies after Star Trek Nemesis, we might be able to work together. And then, you know, that black hole thing happens. And I guess uh, not. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. Romulans. Sorry about that, Romulans. So, uh, Larry, that's my, um, that's my counselor's log. I'm going to talk a little bit about what to do about the fundamental attribution error in a moment. But um, before we get to the away mission, we're taking uh, a detour into ah. the K3 factor. Um, so what do you Larry, mean a detour? Do you... This is always on the plan. This is part I mean, of the route. No, no, no. It is a part of the plan. Uh, yeah, it's all part of the plan. Uh, absolutely. Uh, take us away with the K3 factor. What, what do you have for us this week, Larry? Yeah, so if you're new with this, the K3 factor is, as you saw there, the only bit out of the original series that refers to mental health. It's a it's an indicator on McCoy's biobed monitor. Um, and for us, the K3 factor is where we take our theme and our topics today and we do a, a, a star, a Trekland style deep dive. So here's the thing. Uh, I was kidding. If you heard me a, a little bit earlier, we were talking about living witness. Um, we had the great moment there where there's a whole reinterpretation of history going on with all the human bodies on the set. But there's also another image, if Dr. Ali will indulge me, of the Kyrian Museum. From that show, this was late in um, this episode was late in I want to say fifth season. I'm this looking at right here. Larry. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Yeah, uh, the Kyrian Museum. It's a wonderful. It's a huge for TV. It's a huge set. That that's not faking anything. That's all built. Uh, if you know about uh, you know those skylights and that staircase wraps around and comes down and there's all that bottom the dp enjoyed that that's way 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 that's a huge set for the tv scale they the made that it, wait did they made that for voyager that was they a voyage yeah that, that was for the yeah. living witness episode yeah. that was the end of season uh one two three four yeah four i was right uh, so this was like uh 95 96, 96 98 duh larry think about it my point here is that that was built huge and they splurged money on it because they got to borrow from another account. They got to hmm. borrow from the account for the movie budget for Insurrection, which was being built and shot at the same time because oh. the plan was – and Richard James and his art team by then – Richard James was the art director for – after Herman left – Herman, uh, sorry to say Herman Gehring. Herman Zimmerman. Herman Zimmerman? Yeah. Yeah, different Herman. Herman Zimmerman, uh, only, only did the next generation after doing movies since four, uh, five, uh, the first year. He got the show launched, went off to do the movies. Richard James came in and oversaw the art department as production designer through all of the rest of next gen and then all of Voyager. He got to custom design Voyager. 
Herman did the movies and then came in and was the DS9 art designer and then Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So uh, Richard James's team designed this set, fourth season of late fourth season of Voyager, totally with the understanding that they were going to amortize the cost out because it was going to figure into insurrection. And I think I've got another mm-hmm. image for you there. So if people didn't realize this, uh, and there, there's when they've wrecked the Kyrian Museum at the end, right? That's kind of the upshot of Living Witness. So right. the next next slide, please. Here it comes. Boom. So there's poor old Admiral Daugherty, Daugherty in the uh, Sonar Body Lab. But the Sonar Body Lab set, you can see the, see the stairs there? Oh. The yes. reason that that was they, – they, the reason they got such a big uh, budget to build that for living – for a mere TV episode. See? It's Bam. the same – it's the it's, same thing. Redressed on the surface. It's the same. It's not a fake. <laughs> anyway, there's your K3 thing. That's a K, you know, it's a case of we're going to spend more money on this on the TV. Because, and that was the synergy that you had that as long as movies and TV shows were separated, uh, you didn't have, if you're going to blow a ton of money on a series like, oh, Discovery, you're just blowing a ton of money on it, which they did. And YouTube is only picking up the tab one season. Um, but anyway, but that's a case of back when Netflix. everything was all together on the lot, they would pull yeah. things like that. Um, yeah, you know, Larry, this is, um, I think it, it Did I surprise you? This is the test. You did. did you did. You? I didn't know this one. I didn't okay. know this one. So it's a, um, it's a small K through, very specific, but I thought I would throw that in. You know, um, uh, I don't, I don't know in the comment section if there's a little going back and forth between like a little confusion over the fundamental attribution error. So I'm going to use it as an example here and I'll explain it again. But, um, in general, I'm very not in favor of giant corporations. However, when it comes to Star Trek, my mind will make all these explanations. Well, it's actually great for Paramount and CBS. To have this integration when it comes to Star Trek, because they can do things like this, share sets, share budgets, have a lot more integration in, in much the same way that Marvel has now. Star Trek had this way back in, uh, in the nineties and two thousands. Pioneered it. They're pioneered it. Yeah. The shared universe idea and of, of, um, of sharing budgets, sharing sets. Uh, there's a lot of examples of, um, this happened with the motion, um, the, the original series crew with some of their movies sharing sets with the next generation and then the next generation sharing sets with the movies. Um, there was a lot of back and forth happening there. So I, th- I think not only did it add to a similar um, uh, visual look, but it also uh, helped them save money. And, and so this is, this is kind of the fundamental attribution error is like for ourselves or for stuff we like, we find a lot of ways to explain what's going on. Uh, we find a lot of ways to defend what's going on. But for others and people we don't know well, we don't have all those explanations and we tend to blame them for what they're doing. So all the other media corporations are bad for having these giant conglomerates. But when it comes to Paramount, you know, it's just like they're telling better Star Trek stories. We find ways to explain it. So that's that's an example that helps out. In it the, sounds like in you're chat. saying you retcon the reality you know. Yes. 
you mistrust the reality. You, you, yeah, you don't retcon the reality. You don't know. I mean, I, I yeah. don't know. I, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like, um, okay, Vulcans. They're really good at rationalizing what they do, right? Uh, it's not, you know, a lie, Spock, and a mission, right? Like, they, they're very good at finding these rationalizations. For I what merely they do. exaggerated. I merely exaggerated. Yes, another good example. When it comes to ourselves, we very much think like Vulcans. We find ways to rationalize our own behavior. But when it comes to others, we we act in more of a um, Andorian in Star Trek Enterprise kind of way. Um, really uh, distrustful and blaming the other person and thinking that they're uh, they don't have the best intentions. Um, uh, for what they're doing, so that if that helps, um, yeah, I think that that's a great one, Larry. I like that K three. Thank you for that. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And I I will file the Tellerite sometime in the future. I'll say, okay, you forced <laughs> me to go to the Tellerite when I filed away back in 2020. I love uh, I love what Brian just said. <laughs> uh, Vulcans because logic. No, really. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and now we're getting all the great, uh, Star are we ready? Trek are we just gonna say hailing frequencies? Go for it, bam. Well, I've got, I've got an away mission. Hold oh, yeah, that's on. Right. Now. Sorry. Speaking of detours. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I should I was gonna do... the structure of the show a little more intensely, I guess. <laughs> I was gonna do, uh, Doherty out. Out. Um, <laughs> bad impression there, but, um, alright, let's jump Thank into the, um, away <laughs> mission. Yeah, that. Uh, this is, this is the part of the show. <laughs> yeah, that. This is the part of the show. Uh, apparently, you should take a drink when um, one of your hosts forgets what comes next, as apparently both of us have done today. Um, this is the part of the show where I give you um, at least one tip on how you can apply some of what we're talking about to your own life. So when it comes to misjudging motivations, the away mission is not about how can you better misjudge other people's away motivations quite the opposite. So um, one thing that I, I'd like to share with people for so long, my career has been about understanding where other people are coming from. And I've met and worked with a lot of different people from a lot of different places with a lot of different challenges and a lot of different strengths. And Larry, I learned a long time ago that um, I am absolutely horrible at making assumptions about other people and why they do different things. Um, I learned this very early in my career. That's probably that, a good safety factor because now you're not depending on that. Well, exactly. And that's why I've come to accept that. But like, as I hear people's stories, the very first time I meet them, um, I, I start to form ideas in my head, or at least I did very much early in my career. I started to form ideas in my head about why they made this action, why they went to this place, why they, acted in A way instead of B way. And I learned as I started to ask people more questions to understand the situation they're in, that I was always wrong. Always, always wrong. And I have the, I have the privilege of knowing that as, um, as a psychologist working in this way, but I think most people don't get the benefit of being able to work with someone in a completely confident, uh, or a confidential way where they are able to kind of share honestly with someone who's trained to listen in a very compassionate way. Like that doesn't happen to a lot of people. So 
what I want to help everyone to do is to be able to listen like a therapist a bit more in in your life. Doesn't mean in every situation you're in, of course not. But it does mean with the people that you want to understand better and with the people you don't want to misjudge their motivations, there's some very simple things that you can do that are going to help you to um, to get better at that, become a better listener. I have a video, um, if anyone wants to share this in the comments section, otherwise I can do it later. I've got a video called How to Listen Like a Therapist on my YouTube channel. Um, if anyone wants to share that, How to Listen Like a Therapist, that would be awesome. That video kind of dives into these skills in a lot more detail. But the, the basics are... Number one, Larry, when you're talking to someone else, the most important thing you can do when you want to really try to understand where they're coming from is just reflect back what they're saying. Uh, what this Wait, means... Wait, reflect back what they're saying? Yeah, reflect back what you, what they're saying. Um, Larry, you have some experience doing this. <laughs> all, all it really means... All it really means, um, and uh, you know, you've you've this worked. This isn't therapy psychology training. This is what journalists do in an interview. Hopefully, that's what I was about to say. That's mm-hmm. what I was about to say. A good um, a good journalist actually has a lot in common with a good therapist, and a good therapist has a lot in common with a good journalist too. Um, the differences are they see a lot of sickos. No, I'm. <laughs> the the difference I was going to say is uh, journalists are are more interested <laughs> in. Um, in the truth and understanding the truth and um, a therapist is more interested in understanding your experience and is a little bit less interested in the quote truth of the objective truth whatever that might be but um uh the more you you're able to reflect back in your own words what the other person is saying it gives the other person an opportunity to say no that's not quite right or actually it was like this so, Larry, if if you were telling me a story about, oh, I got really angry at this other person, they said this, and I would say, okay, so you spoke to this other person, and they said these things, and then that made you really upset, and you you might say, well, no, no, it wasn't that part that made me upset, it's about <laughs> this thing that made me upset. So, I'm not saying reflect back like verbatim, you say every word back, but mm-hmm. in your own understanding, sharing what the other person has said to you gives them a chance to check in and, and to, sh- to really pinpoint what the actual experience is. That was number one. Number two skill for listening like a therapist is to ask them, um, what's this like for you? I hate the question of how does this make you feel? Larry, that's kind of, that's a stupid question most of the time because most of the time we don't know how it makes you feel. But it's like, what all the counselors on TV say. I know, I know. And Troy asked that, and Esri asked that, and I, I hate it. Um, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Because it, it's not a very helpful question. What's more helpful is, um, uh, what is this like for you? Or what was going on inside of you at that time? You Some need people... to offer a, uh, you need to offer a psych uh, webinar for the WGA. For the writer's guilt. <laughs> Therapy love... writing mistakes you're making and how to, yeah. And how to write it better. Um, and how to write it better, yeah. Yeah, because those tropes are just, uh, they're not they're not that interesting either. Um, yeah, I would love to, Larry, make that happen. Um, I will I will beam in to that webinar. 
Um, quite literally, because that's the only way we can interact with each other now. I can't actually be in person. But asking, you know, what was that like for you? What was going on inside of you? Some people are better at describing physical experiences. Like, well, I felt really hot inside. Some people are really good at describing an emotion and might say, well, I got really angry. And some people might say, I just didn't like it. And all of that is fine. Um, and all of that's going to help you to better under, uh, understand uh, what the experience was. So it's those two simple things, reflecting back what you're hearing and asking someone, what was that like for you when this happened? What was that like? What was going on for you when, when that person said this thing? That just those two basic skills will get you so much closer to really understanding someone else's motivations and where they're coming from. That's it. That's all I've got for the... Um, mm. For the uh, away mission today. Um, that's all you've got for the away mission today? That's all I've got. Yeah. And Jared says, I know videos on my channel. Jared, I've got a really, this, I've got a, a video that's so close to being finished and I was going to hit publish, but then this other big opportunity came up to work on another video and that's going to be out soon. There's, there's some cool stuff in the, in the cooker. Jared, you're going to see some cool stuff very soon. I, I promise. So you cook your videos. I was wondering because you're churning them out. See, I, I just do the I use a slow cooker, shelf Larry. kind on the cookie tray overnight and you're getting, yours are coming out a lot faster than mine are. So uh, apparently I use a slow cooker, a very slow cooker for my videos. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I'm, All right, I'm, so folks, we are going to open up um, the hailing frequencies. Which I'm means 45 just... minutes behind here, going back through the scroll, but lots of good stuff. Everybody's been. I feel like we've had a we've had a a bump in turnout today here live. Today's it's, been it's we've awesome. had a the a lot of folks come back just... to back home back to back home to roost. There's a <laughs> lot. There's a lot of really cool uh, really cool comments coming in. Um, Libby says, uh, you should use an Instapot. Now I'm like, that's such, like, are we talking about Instagram now? Like, I, I, I'm like, yeah, uh, but I, I, I should for my videos. Definitely use an Instapot. <laughs> um, gosh. So oh, many, Cairo has yeah. a good one here. Example, yeah. actually an example for our theme today. Yeah. Uh, Robert says, uh, an example, and it's a, and, you know, I was trying to, we didn't, I, I got off talking about the Sarek of Discovery there a little bit, but as far as our theme today on Discovery and Picard, one thing, I mean, first contact, it's not, it wasn't first contact, but the whole origin of Discovery, the battle of the primaries, and it's so muddled because it's kind of like a muddle on top of a muddle is the, the spark that started the Klingon war and Burnham misjudging. Oh, the binary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's a perfect example of, of, uh, mistaken intentions and, and misjudged motivations starting a war, much less, you know, a, a lesser conflict. Um, but it's like discovery is full of misjudged everything up yes. and down the line. But he says oh his, his point he makes here is an obol for Sharon, Sharon from discovery season two with the hmm. sphere. They think the sphere is trying to attack them. And all it's oh. trying to do is give them its data before it die. It dies. Oh, Yes. That's a great. That's a great I'm sorry, example. I've only been through Discovery like a couple of times, <laughs> not that's forty-seven. A, so yeah, that's a um, a really great. Uh, that's a really great example, Larry um, and Cairo. Yes, um, you see the pro. The problem for me with 
the newer Trek is um, a lot of these episodes I've only seen once. And so um, it's very easy for me to forget some of the details like like that gem of an episode, because uh, especially with this uh, serialized storytelling, that episode was kind of a I don't want to say it was a one off. I mean, it definitely played out in, in the larger story arc, but it, it was its unique thing. And I, I just completely forgot about it. Uh, but that's a great example. Why, thank you. I just thought I would repeat it. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I like what... So I was talking about Sarek being an outcast in his culture, which has nothing to do with our theme today, but I'm, I'm glad I kind of put... And Libby says... Uh, they're ta- She and Jared are talking here about leaving home. And mm-hmm. Libby says uh, she grew up in a small Arkansas town with a long history of affirmed bachelors and spinster lady roommates... Um, and said, everyone knew, we just knew enough to mind our own damn business. So, anyway, I just thought, thank you for that. But yes, um, uh, Dan Leckie says, who's responsible for fleshing out the Tellarites? Manny Cotto and Mike Sussman. Yes, who I found out were old Tellarite fans. Not so much a Tellarite fan, but like, just like, why? It's a, it's the underdog. It's like, why do we not, they're a founder? We don't know anything about them. What is wrong with this picture? But, this is but they're fair. not that kind. They're not the other kind of founder. Uh, in in another who, battle uh... for Star Trek social justice, where you know <laughs> hashtag time for Teller Prime. Um, Zahir says um, Larry's referencing to the Discovery rehash of the episode where Georgie, uh, Georgie, <laughs> where Jordy weans the space baby off the Enterprise's energy. That's another really great episode here. Um, you soured the milk! Uh, wow, that was horrible. That was a horrible impression. But um, it was uh, it was a baby who wanted yeah. uh, wanted milk. Um, not not an alien that was attacking the Enterprise. Right. Um, but uh, well, it's uh, the it's the Leo Brahms episode. Yep. Yeah, the, sec- the, the hol- second, the holodeck yeah. one, right? Yeah, she's yes, yeah. What's interesting about that episode? Yeah, Larry, it it gets referenced later with Scotty when Jordy is retelling it, but it also gets referenced later where Leah Brahms, the real Re- Leah Brahms, comes to the Enterprise. Um, Galaxy, the next generation, yeah, Galaxy. Um, the next generation has these wonderful moments where, uh, way before serial- serialized uh, storytelling where past episodes do play out in different ways in, in future episodes and future stories. Um, they actually did it a couple of times, third season of the original series, which they never really did before mm-hmm. standalones. It's just that half the time when they would refer back, they would like, <laughs> it's third season and they, Fred Freiberger and they would get something wrong. <laughs> they would re- like in the middle of the, of, of fake, you know, Kirk, Kirk Janice's court martial and turnabout intruder, the last one, and they and and he's gonna he, um, Janice and Kirk's body is going to sentence Kirk and Janet's body to right. Janice's body to death. And Sulu and and Chekhov actually have a line in the scene, and they jump up and they say, "But you can't do that. The death penalty is expressly prohibited, pro- uh, forbidden." Mm. And then Chekhov says, "Yes, only under General Order Number Six. And you want to go? It's General Order Number Seven. It's like oh, <laughs> oh poor." third season star trek you got it close but 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 there were times when they would yes once or twice refer back 
they got you to know, they got to what they were doing like baby ooh it's the late 60s and we're just revolutionizing tv format writing you know there's <laughs> By um kicking the barrier between standalone shows this this makes me think about um so this is a little bit of a stretch larry not not a stretch like insurrection stretch but uh, a little stretch of our topic over here but well, that's bear not, with that's, me that's that's a new one yeah. <laughs> uh, but bear with me. We're talking about misjudging motivations, right? And I think, um, uh, yeah, Tim Tim had this uh, comment about Lower Decks uh, this week dropped the line about Captain Kirk and a 50-foot Vulcan. Does that now make the original series, uh, the animated series, officially canon, right? And so there's all these discussions about... It's been canon for a while. It's been canon, right. Right, there's all these discussions about what's canon, and um, canon getting itself wrong in that example that you just gave about seri- uh, season three of the original series, kind of misremembering uh, general order uh, number. They said seven, but it was five or they said six and it was four. What was it? I think they said uh, six and it should have been. It's supposed to be seven. Yeah. 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 So this is um, I'm going <laughs> to uh, paraphrase um, uh, our good friend John Champion from an, uh, an episode of Mission Log related to the animated series, I think. I think they did a big recap um, as they were finishing the um, the animated series watch. And if anyone isn't familiar, John Champion does uh, Trek Files with Larry, um, another Roddenberry podcast. But um, the Mission Log podcast has been going through the entire Star Trek canon mm-hmm. um, every episode, looking at the morals, meanings, and messages behind every episode. Great show. If you're if you like our stuff, you'll you'll like um, their stuff too. Anyways, uh, I believe it was John who said, um, "Canon is not a prison. You know, canon is a tool, um, and canon is something that helps us to tell stories. It's not this place that we we imprison ideas and storytelling in. It's it's purely just a tool for us." So I always like that explanation of canon and um, helping us to get to a place of understanding that, you know, the writers are doing the best they can to tell interesting stories in this vast universe. And um, sometimes that's very hard to do. It's hard to tell a new Star Trek story without moving things around to make it easier to tell that new story that you want to tell. There's a lot of Star Trek out there, and sometimes people will mess up canon. Sometimes people will change things. And as a fan, that's very hard, but let's let's try to understand what the writers are dealing with. The writers are trying to tell new, interesting uh, stories in a world where there's been hundreds, hundreds of stories told. And if you bring up uh, the novels and comic books and all the other stuff, Thousands of Star Trek stories mm-hmm. have been told. Um, that's a pretty big challenge. So when it comes to um, misjudging motivations, <laughs> having a little bit of intellectual humility, having a little bit of flexibility, having a little bit of compassion towards writers, that's something that's always helped me when I've struggled with these type of canonical issues. Like at the top of the hour, Larry, uh, or at the top of the show, when I was talking about some of my frustration with so many Enterprise D references in Lower Decks, your your perspective on it actually like completely changed how I'm thinking about that now, and now it makes me think, okay, I understand this. I, I can I can get with this. So in Trekland, Doctor Trek years ago came up with a hashtag, 
the hashtag to for, to handle all this because it's what I used to do. My point, my attitude. I think I said it today. My attitude was, it's on film. That ship has sailed. Now what are we going to mm. do about it? Mm-hmm. Yes, next time maybe prep better. So anyway, years ago I came up with a hashtag: texture not trivia. So that in, when you that. see something that goes against what you what whether it was your own personal headcanon or whether it's something you thought everybody agreed on. And somehow yeah. this new junior writer on the latest show got something past everybody and it got aired and filmed and nobody along the way caught it. And so now it's there. So do you run around screaming and go, they screwed this up, they screwed this up? <laughs> or are you going to say, okay, and take a page from the best uh, acting notebook, directing, writing notebook and go, you know what? Sometimes it's the exception that proves the rule. Sometimes, if it's a drama, then the comedic moments really give texture. Sometimes yeah. in a comedy, it's the dramatic, you know, when you go against the grain, when it's the except, all those, all those metaphors. So when, when something sometimes goes wrong, so in the case I just said, turnabout intruder, Chekhov says only under general order number six. Poor Chekhov. He was so excited and upset that he said the wrong, yeah. you know, order number. That's yeah. all you have to do. The, yeah. the famous one about, you know, and it's because things were done. Scotty, um, Scotty is, at one point, Scotty says, uh, when he's revived from relics and he says, Oh, I thought maybe you were, you were, uh, Captain Kirk himself coming to rescue me. But then, you know, later you see, later we film it with seeing that he knows Kirk died on the B, on the Enterprise B, mm. and people say, well, why didn't he blah, blah, blah? Well, because we say, well, my God, Scotty has been in his transporter loop for mm-hmm. 80 years or whatever, and he's just muddle-headed. He's just yeah. going back to the, the muscle memory that is the most strongest for him. So anyway, Or maybe that was his wish and desire that Captain Kirk was still alive and he would be the one rescuing him. I mean, we've all been in those kind of places where this, we longed for someone yeah. who's no longer with us. Well, this whole, this whole discussion, this whole post-discovery outrage time, there's lots of sincere critics and criticisms and really structural things I wish they hadn't done, but I also understood why, and like I said, I'm just resigned to it, now let's just go explain and fix it, which is something we've done up and down Star Trek over. You have different generations of creators doing things that don't know. You have different access to, to facts. When, when Next Generation was starting, my yeah. homemade concordances, which is a takeoff on Bejo's concordance, which was just, what are the Star Trek facts we see on air? Let's get our arms around them. That's what her concordance was. That's what mine were. That's what the encyclopedia, that's what memory of, that's what canon is. And my metaphor yeah. for canon is guardrails. It's like, mm. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to have this road and whether it's a cow path, or whether it's a two-lane county road or a two-lane highway, or now it's a four-lane divide. I mean, now we've got a six-lane freeway. Whatever it is, we yeah. need guardrails to keep us on the road so that we get from A to B without going in the ditch or going yeah. off the bridge. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean that the guardrails mean we're stuck. We're in a straitjacket, or like you said, we're in a prison. Yeah. We have maneuvering room. And you know what? Occasionally, there's too much traffic. There's a lot yeah. of demand on this road, and we have to add some lanes. Yeah, We're still going to go the same way. We're still going to avoid accidents, but we still need guard. We just move the guardrails wider. And, oh, now yeah, we've I got agree. 
We've got an eight-lane freeway both directions. It's a huge thing. It's a huge franchise. But we still have – and guardrails keep us going the right direction, but they let us maneuver. And, so and that's, you know what? You can, have, for you can have an off-ramp. Hmm? You can have an off-ramp to a whole nother highway like the Kelvin timeline that can take you in a different direction – and it's both similar and it's different. And that's okay. You don't have to take that off-ramp if you don't but want to. But when you take that off-ramp to the Kelvin Highway, that that yeah. highway will have guardrails, too. Yes. To keep you yes. on that highway. Right. There's a lot um, of paradigm fuzziness anymore that I just go, how, how is this so complicated? Canon is just the collection of facts so you know where the hell you are. So that when you do, hopefully, if you do make a change or you do add some texture – then you're doing it intelligently. You know, it's like I have to know what all the rules are when I break one. Yeah. That. Right. Yeah, and I do it intelligently. I, or yeah. I um I like Jared's uh, comparison. We've been crossing the streams a lot, so why not? Let's do another one here. But um, did the 1967 Doctor Who production staff actually think that the show would still be going in 2020 when they introduced the 13 regeneration limit in a bit of a dialogue? No, they didn't. And from the other angle, did the people did people really think that BBC would bring a multi million dollar? Let me bring it back up. Uh, a multi million dollar franchise to a halt because one long line of dialogue from forty years ago? No, absolutely not. You know, um, Larry, I think this is this is something you've done a great service to to the fandom when you have been able to um, to have these interviews and dialogues and. Um, and discussions about people who are involved in, in the creation of this, uh, of, of Star Trek and, um, and the fans and how we understand it. Like, you know, for a long time, I really hated, uh, Star Trek Generations. I just did dislike the movie. And then two things happened. One is I started to do some research and read more from, um, Brandon Braga and Ron Moore about the process of making that movie. And um, the timeline they had, they were they were writing all good things in Star Trek Generations, like around the same time. It was a very tight timeline. They had a lot of studio notes about all the things that need to happen in the movie. We need to tie up the Dura sisters. We need to destroy the Enterprise D. We need Kirk, but we also need Picard. We want this handoff. You know, we want all these things to happen. It's very hard. Long list, it's, yeah. It's a very long list. <laughs> the same people who wrote all good things wrote Star Trek Generations, and wrote Star Trek First Contact. So let's let's have a little bit And they of, took a year and a half to write Generations, and they had to write All Good Things in like two months. Right, right. So They're totally different. as you hear yeah. the stories, this gets back to the fundamental attribution error. They, they're <laughs> bad writers. Well, let's, let's look at the context of... Of what was happening and the experience that they had of writing Star Trek Generations. And when I did that, it was, I was, I was able to approach Star Trek Generations in a very different way. Similarly, uh, one of, one of our, um, our mutual, um, uh, panelists from the very first, uh, Psychology of Star Trek versus Star Wars panel, uh, my colleague, Dr. Drea Ledimenti, when she first watched Generations, we were having a text back and forth, and she said, I love this movie as a metaphor for time and how we can get stuck in different moments and how we can get unstuck. And I think the ne Nexus is a beautiful metaphor for all this stuff. And I'm thinking, are you serious? Are you? Are, where is what? this coming from? But she was approaching Generations as someone who didn't have all this 
years. Uh, she just first watched Generation since a few mm-hmm. years ago, and she was approaching it outside of all the anticipation right. of what's going to happen if Picard. She had and no Trek baggage, meet. right? Well, there's, no there's, Trek baggage, yeah. no canon. That's why baggage. I say people that come back to you know, first run Star Trek viewing is obviously a wonderful thing. I remember thinking when you know Mr. Warf fire at the end of Best of Both Worlds. Oh my God! And yeah. nobody will yeah. ever have and having to wait three months. No one will ever have to deal with that again. But Discovery and Picard have their, they're having to wait nine months. Okay, that's just one tiny thing. Everybody, if something is good enough to last more than one airing, yeah. you know, the upside is it's good enough to be around. The downside is that it's gonna, or not downside, that everyone's gonna have a different experience with it. And if it's the more universal, like I said this the other day, like Shakespeare, the more people are gonna watch it over time. And they will always be bringing where they are in their own life, where the world is at the moment, and the and now the media. Are you just watching it as number forty-seven out of the eighty-two you're binge watching today? You know, yeah. versus someone. So all those kind of experiences bring something different to it. I want to throw one more thing, and I know we're we're at Please. like two hours. Yeah. Part of this whole fandom reaction to it's a mistake. I mean, yes, I get, I get, I get. Oh, I get disappointed. I've told you my whole thing about bones yeah. and the. In the and, in, in yeah. 2009, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, Kelvin, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. And I told you, oh. and, and you know, I love that line, the line that you hate. Universe. I love. I know, yeah. and that's an alternate universe, and it's fake anyway, and nobody cares. It's okay. It can be wrong. It's a fake universe. It's not prime, <laughs> I should say. But to me, that means if it's not prime, then it's a fake universe. It's a fake. So. Sixth, uh, seventh season, next generation. I'm doing my end of the year interviews with everybody. Yeah. Sitting down with Rene Ishvaria, who I love. He's been a guest on Trek Files. He's a wonderful guy. Um, did his first show when they finally convinced him to write for Star Trek and move to LA was, uh, was, uh, The Offspring with Lol. So that was wonderful. his first Trek script. So there you go. No, he, so he's writing Dark Page, which is about Loxana and, and Troy and Deanna finds out, you know, the upshot is she finds out she had a little sister who, who's older than her, who died before she was, or when she was a baby. She had no memory of this older sister, four or five years older, who drowns, right? That's mm-hmm. the upshot of the show. And as I watched it airing, the night it aired, uh, uh, Mr. Holm is not an on-screen character, but Deanna talks about writing home to Beta Z to get some documents and images and material from Mr. Holm at home about her mom's early life, right? Her dad's dead, obviously. And so she's trying to get, she's trying to help her mom's in a coma or whatever, a Betazoid coma. But she writes Mr. Holm to get some early material from before she was born, when Loxana was younger. And I remember watching the episode, and I went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I had an uh uh-oh moment. And so at the end of the year, when I'm sitting with with Renee, and this is such a take on when I watch the YouTubers now who have legitimate points. It's like, guys, this is like the White House press corps. It's like, are you going to come in and bash somebody in the head? Well, there's times I wish I'd like to, I have that feeling, but are you going to maintain a, are you going to maintain your communication channel so that you can get to tough, even tough questions, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm sitting there, we've gone through the whole year, all the episodes. So now we're doing Dark Page. It may be the last one of the year. We get through the, you know, how did this come, the whole making of bit. So we get to a point and I go, so Renee, and he's known me for a couple of years now. And we've done the first edition of the book and all this. So we have a trust a relationship here. So, so Renee, um, the whole thing about Mr. Holm, uh, about 
the whole thing about Mr. Holm being there before Deanna was born? Are we postulating that he was Loxana's manservant before Mr. Zelo? Because in Haven, when you first meet Loxana and Mr. Holm, Deanna doesn't know who he is because mm -hmm. Loxana has just hired him. And Deanna says, what happened to Mr. Zelo? And she goes, oh, he got too flirtatious and forward and I had to fire him. And Renee just looked at me with, you know, the classic deer in the headlights look. He was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, oops. You know, but kids, this is before Memory Alpha. This is before, that yeah. was before I was doing, yeah. well, I was doing my books, but Renee just did. They didn't think about it. And it was yeah. aired and no one on staff caught that. But it was like, it was like a slap in the face to me because I very remember, I, I very much remember that moment. Yeah. And so it's just a case of, okay, but did I sit there and scream at Renee for getting that wrong and messing up canon? It's like, no. So now we have to go, okay, well, did she, did she have home fi hired and he went away and Deanna was born and all she knew was the guy before home? Or maybe there were two, you know. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, it's a case, yeah. but it's, it's a case of it's very totally correct to bring it up and go, so there's this, this, and this. And in this case, <laughs> sometimes writers go, Oh yeah, and we're going to do this. Or maybe you're the yeah. fifth person to bring it up, and by the time you talk to them, they've got something in in line. Yeah, they got something. But in this line. is a case where I got to go. Uh, I wasn't. In, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't interested in playing gotcha. I just wanted to go. By the way, sometimes I feel protective. I feel very protective, yeah. Star Trek. By the way, Renee, when people show up to ambush you over this, you might want to have an answer ready. I didn't say that. But that's the thing, you know, and it's and sometimes it's kind of like, I don't know, Larry, do you have an do you, what do we, what should we do? <laughs> I'll say, well, uh, I like I like Cairo's uh, headcanon here is Loxana was so heartbroken about the incident that she fired uh, um, and later rehired him when she needed someone again. Um, See, it's very easy to do that. One yeah, thing. you know, and look, I think and look what we just did. We just gave five more layers of texture to something because of a mistake. Yeah, That's what text, I, not trivia means. I, I think what a, a big part of today's whole episode to bring it to bring it to a close here is uh, really um, having a lot of flexibility and taking the time to try to understand where <laughs> someone's coming from. We talked about a lot of examples of that today, and we talked about some tools um, uh, on on how to do that, and um, being a little bit slower to to pull the judgment. I think everyone is doing the best they can. And that includes writers who are trying to do the best they can to tell a, a fun, interesting story. Thanks for listening to the Life Support Live podcast. We'd love to get your feedback on this episode. I'm at Ali Matu on social media. And I'm at Larry Nimichek. Hey, if you like this show, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It'll help more people to discover life support. And you can join the community at our Life Support Live Facebook group. If you'd like to learn more about psychology and mental health, check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the psych show. And for a deeper dive into all things Trekland, like Portal 47, check out Larry Nimichek's Trekland on Facebook and YouTube. Until next time, live long and prosper. Trek well, everyone. <laughs>